1 Peter 2. As you're turning there, I just want to reflect on a, a book that stirred me quite a bit. Uh, probably about 15, maybe 20 years ago, I read a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was uh, published in uh, 1985, I think. And uh, it, it's written by uh, the late Neil Postman, a Jew who was a media specialist, an author, an educator, really profound thinker and kind of social commentary or commentator. And he was uh, trying to alert our culture to the fact that it's so engaged in television and media in the 80s. Imagine that. Imagine what he would think today, right? Uh, That the culture's amusing itself to death or becoming headless and non- uh, non-thinking and not dialoguing, just responding to an entertainment culture. He was talking about how television had negatively affected public communication in modern-day America. And with our wild media boom that has taken place and continues to exponentially grow, I think what he said then is even more relevant today, and it's been republished and it's, it's being recirculated even now. Postman, if you'll just indulge me to give a little bit of an overview from the book, he paints a dystopic, which is sort of a culturally frightening picture from the literary visions of George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's um, Brave New World. Orwell was warning uh, the culture back when he wrote his great work, uh, fictional work, 1984, that government and the tyranny of government could take over by banning books where everyone would become powerless because they would stop thinking. Huxley in Brave New World, if you sort of compare the two, he's depicting a population that's too amused to be concerned with reading. So books aren't banned in his vision. Huxley's saying we're so amused with entertainment, leisure, and laughter that we're made powerless because we stop thinking. Postman basically argues that the Huxleyan view was taking over Orwell was banning books. Huxley feared um, there would be no reason to ban a book. No one wanted to read one. Orwell feared that uh, those who deprive us of information um, would would succeed. Huxley feared that those uh, who would give us so much that so much uh, entertainment that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell was fearing that. Truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become captive to the culture. Huxley feared that we would become captive to a trivial culture preoccupied with the equivalent of the feelies, whatever that means. Huxley in A Brave New World revisited, he revisited what he had done, uh, said that those on alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. A lot of people are afraid of big brother these days, right? They're afraid of government takeover and sort of shutting us down as a populace. And it depends on which political side you're on in terms of which big brother you fear, right? Postman set out to prove that Amusing ourselves to death or this Huxley vision was succeeding. Politics, religion, news, athletics, education, commerce. These are all new adjuncts of show business. America favors the talent, the format to amuse. The concept of truth is just based on forms of expression or personalities. Does any of this sound familiar even today? 
I mean, I think there's some relevance here. In the 19th century, 1800s, transportation and communication disengaged from each other. In other words, you didn't have to go across the pond by boat to get the latest news from England. It could be telegraphed suddenly. So suddenly what that means is something that was relevant in Virginia that had just happened could now in our country, because of electricity and telegraphy, uh, news could happen uh, down in Texas that had happened in Virginia. And suddenly the disengagement of time um, with communication took place. What that means is people began to live for news. The next thing that would go in and outside your brain. Does that sound familiar, right? It's, it's how are things relevant? Well, they're relevant because they're brand new and it's newsworthy and we need to hear it hot and we need to hear it now. Now, this is a million more times the question, right? We live in the age of show business. And really, the reason I bring this up is in that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he makes a strong point for how politics and show business have been tied together. This doesn't sound familiar at all, right? Supplying the audience with entertainment, he says the average length of a shot on network TV was 3.5 seconds. In other words, camera angles are always moving. When the news starts up, the lights go down and the music starts and the intensity. And I'm not just talking liberal media, liberal and conservative. I'm picking on all media a little bit here. The eye never rests. It's always something new to see. Here's a quote. The problem is not that television, what television presents to us with entertaining subject matter, but that all subject matter is presented as entertaining And so now thinking does not play well on television. It's a performing art. The culture watches uh, news as moving pictures, millions of them in short duration and dynamic variety. People aren't talking to each other as much or exchanging um, ideas in deep dialogue. He talked about how different politicians back in the day would stand for hours and they would give their political speeches like stump speeches out in the open air from memory. And then there would be a response to that discourse. Now it's pop culture media hitting us more less as propositions, more in terms of good looks, celebrities, and commercials. Now I would say, just to argue against some of this, with the, the boom of media and emailing and texting, and I, I read this from a, a popular writer. He said, with the email, with the, the boom of emailing, people are writing more and more than ever before. In terms of very thought-provoking writing with depth, that could be argued as uh, who knows, right? But it's true. We are more of a writing culture since email. And I would say with podcasting, there's more free speech initiative where people are talking together and dialoguing and listening in that regard. So media has also helped us, but there is a warning here. It's the now this culture. It's the what's next on the news. It's fragmented thinking that's happening. It's the average news story being 45 seconds, and it's hard to get deep with things like that. So now, and he has a chapter called Reach Out and Elect Someone. If show business is the main business of politics since the switch to TV, Politics became show business. Some would argue that the better looking candidates are the ones that get um, elected, right? And that happened with the age of show business and giving speeches on TV. Also, the opposite is true. Who can smear the other one more is part of the um, political aura that we live in. 
Commercials are a primary vehicle to present political ideas and political campaigns. An average of 15 seconds or longer is giving visual symbols that are being taught quickly. Instead of people being confronted with questions and problems, they're being sold solutions. All right, so here's the warning of amusing ourselves to death. And you could read it. This is, I kind of gave you the introduction, and then here's the conclusion thought. Huxley was trying to tell us, this is from Postman, that what afflicted the people in Brave New World was not that they were laughing instead of thinking, but that they did not know what they were laughing about and why they had stopped thinking. So ironically, where where do we find ourselves today, especially in terms of our own culture, in terms of our own government? If government is being given to us through the the media and through the means of entertainment, how do we trust our government? How do we trust a government that is even fighting with itself or seemingly so? Political parties that are becoming more, you know, just caustic with each other. How are we going to respond as Christians in a world that is amusing itself to death. I would say a lot of the younger generation is even waking up to the fact that it's been amusing itself to death or the culture is, or sort of calling the bluff of this entertainment age. But there's some fear that comes with that, some anxiety. How do we trust our governing authorities? How do we trust the, uh, the idea that, you know, Big Brother is out there and I'm afraid of that. What do they know about me? How much should they know about me? What should I do about that? There's skepticism that is on the rise with that. What's the Christian response? The Christian response is to move. It's always this. It's to move from cultural media to inspired media, right? That's why we're here. We're here not to be entertained. We're not here for me to give you the latest pop culture ideas and news. I'm not here to do that. I mean, what I just did is sort of out of the norm, right? Even giving a, a dialogue about something that was written in 19, published in 1985. I'm here to give you inspired truth. We have to be grounded in the word of God. The only way we can trust governing authorities is to trust the God of governing authorities, Here's the principle. You have to submit to governing authorities because you're seeing through the governing authorities to the ultimate highest authority. And the only way to get there from here is through looking again at inspired, timeless, transcendent truth that tells us how to think and what to do with how we're thinking. That's how we can be submissive in a culture that seems to be going crazy sometimes. Well, look in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2. Let's ground ourselves in Scripture this morning and begin with verse 13. 1 Peter 2, look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Let's stop there. First of all, submitting to secular government, if you're following and taking notes, submitting to secular government, first of all, to do so, you have to do it 
to every, you have to be submissive to every human institution, literally to every human, the Greek word creation, every human creation. The word subject is hupotasso. And it's a military term, which means to rank yourself underneath. You're literally making a decision. This is very popular, a popular word in our culture, to be submissive, right? To hupotasso, to rank yourself underneath the authority that is placed over you. And you're only supposed to do that with Christian authorities, right? No, no. It says to every human creation. Now, we're going to make the case that God is the one who creates government and has created these institutions, whether the workplace, the government, or even the family. These are God-ordained institutions. But these are also created amongst the people by even pagan people that we are called to rank ourselves underneath. Look at verse 13, be subject to every, um, the, all of human institutions, but then also look at verse 18, servants or slaves be subject, same word, hupotasso, to your masters with all respect. So Christians who were slaves in this culture were also called to rank themselves underneath human masters. And that's applicable for you in the workplace, where you work, whether you're working for a Christian boss whether you're working for a pagan boss or an unbelieving boss or someone where you don't know where they are spiritually, we are called to rank ourselves underneath that person or persons. In chapter three, verse one, it says, likewise, wives, be subject, hupotasso. These are participles, by the way, present active participles. Ongoingly, you are to submit and here to your own husbands. These husbands in particular are ones who had not yet come to faith in Christ. In the early church and in the church even today, you can find yourself married to someone who's not a believer. For the women here, they were to be submissive so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, a pure, respectful, submissive heart is extremely evangelistic in a household where the husband is an unbeliever. It's no guarantee that a husband will believe, but it is very, very powerful. I digress for a moment. I remember one summer, and I've mentioned this before, I worked on a construction crew and the crew boss was married to a woman who was a believer. And me and my friend were there and we were hammering nails and singing hymns and being a little bit um, belligerent, but they knew that we were Christians. And so on his lunch break, this crew boss would talk about his wife, who was also a black belt in karate, who was a Christian. And her testimony, I never met her, never knew her name or anything about her. He said, look, the weapons that she knows how to use in karate are these psi weapons. And he would, he would draw swords and say, she swings these around. But really what was powerful about her was her submission. And it just, it was always working in his conscience from day to day. I never forgot that. But that's the dynamic of submission here that we're talking about. Being submissive, whether it's a governor, whether it's an employer, whether it's within a neighborhood um, contract, whether it's pagan, secular, good, or evil. Number two, not only to every human institution, but also with God in mind. 
verses 13 again. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Do you see that phrase? That speaks of our mindset. Why do we submit to governing authorities? For God. What's our motivation for that submission? God's glory. And here's the principle again. I'm going to repeat it a couple times this morning. It's coming under someone, saved or unsaved, whether you are offended by this person's politics or not, you're coming under with a submissive attitude, seeing through that person to God who is supreme over that person. You have to see through in the eyes of faith to do this. You do it for the Lord's sake. It's a perspective. If you are in a submissive posture, just figuratively speaking, if you're low, the only place to look is up. And you're looking up, upward to God. Yes, you see superiors. Yes, you see human beings. But you see through them to the higher superior. In every human institution, God is sovereign over that. It's for the Lord's sake. It's also... Just notice again, it's for God's glory. And the word Lord here is kurios, which is for the master. It's for our master's sake. What does this look like practically? What does this do when we are submissive? Look at verse 12, the one just preceding verse 13. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This is giving people their due. It's esteeming others. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, just let that phrase sink in. As a believer, when you're honoring, there's going to be a response. When they speak of you as evildoers, you bad person, right? You evil person. When they do that, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. When they're going after you, speaking ill against you, reviling you, dogging you out. When that's happening, suddenly your submissive posture will create such a contradiction in the moment where you're not speaking back to them, you're not reviling in return, that they become Christians. They'll give glory to God on the day of visitation. They will one way or the other, if they believe or not, they will be giving glory to God. At the knee, at, at the coming of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Even unbelievers will do that. Look at verse 21 down in uh, chapter 3. It says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. What's the example? The tupas, the type. What are we supposed to live like? Jesus dying on the cross. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't didn't speak back. When he was smacked, he didn't smack back. He could have called 10,000 angels. He didn't do it. What did he do instead? While he's dying on the cross, look what he did. But continued, verse 23, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So the idea is as he's being mocked, instead of striking back, he's looking up. Do you see that? Instead of coming back, reviling in return, coming back, hitting back, 
He's inhale, exhaling on the cross, dying, and his heart is entrusting itself to God the Father. You say, how is that practical? That is very practical. As you are being mocked, ridiculed, being spoken evil of, whispered about, hurting, struggling in your job, or struggling to submit to governing authorities, being offended by liberal agendas that you don't agree with, things that that are offensive to you, instead of striking back this way, you look upward and go, Lord, I am trusting you. I am submissive to you. You are sovereign over what I cannot control. Submissive. It's being distinctively Christian. It's when you are put in, listen to this, impossible submission scenarios that make it where the only option for you is to be submissive. When you're actually being submissive, you know what's happening? You will look just like Jesus Christ to people. Because that's, that's not of this world. That person shouldn't be acting the way that person's acting. A person who is decidedly submissive will diffuse very violent situations. Well, thirdly, to be submissive in this culture, you, you have to do so without discrimination. It's subject to every human institution. What does that mean? To the highest and lowest forms of government. Verse 13 at the end, it says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. What does that mean? That's our president. That's uh, the nation's capital, Congress, Supreme Court. No matter how distant or how high you believe the government is to you, how out there it is in terms of something affecting your own life, how offensive the convictions are, the decisions that are being made, the manner in which um, the officers are conducting themselves, the style, the attitudes may be. We are called as Christians to both respect the office and even the officer wielding the office in our culture. Now, we don't respect sin. We don't turn a blind eye to sin, but we are to be genuinely respectful. That's what it's saying here. Being subject to every human institution, every creation here in our governance, we are to be submissive even to the emperor supreme. I was in a conversation with someone just this past week in our community and person said he believed that the reason our current president was elected was because of the connection to Christians and how Christians believed that they were actually loved by this president. Well, I don't know your particular position on our president today. Now that I have all of your attention, I don't. You don't know my particular position about our president. And some of that is personal and private, and I get that. But whether our president is for Christianity or not, whether our president is born again genuinely or not, our response to our president is given to us according to scripture. We're still called to be in a submissive posture. It doesn't mean we don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean that we don't vote. It doesn't mean that we don't join government to affect change from the inside. I understand all of those things are freely ours to do. 
And voting, I believe, is a a God-given responsibility, an opportunity for us to give our voice here within our governance and our government system. But what happens when we have a president who is outrightly against Christianity, pushing liberal agendas? What happens next political cycle? How are we to respond then? The only thing we can do is go back to ground zero, go back to scripture and say, God, what would you have us do? We're called to pray for our president, no matter what. Pray for our governing authorities, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3. First of all, then, this is Paul to Timothy. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. I love that broad scope idea here. Just like Peter, all God-given institutions, all people. Who does he begin with in verse 2? For kings. And all who are in high positions. Why do we pray for them? Number one, because we're commanded to do it. Let me tell you another reason why. God blesses through governance. Say, what about Christian persecution? I understand. I I don't know God's will for us and what God will do and allow to have happen to us as a church in our country. I don't know but we're called to pray for peace. It says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I think a lot of times, I know I personally take for granted the peace that I'm given as a Christian in our country. I take it for granted. But sometimes persecution works to purify the church. It causes people to really stand up and say, I know I'm a believer I'm willing to be persecuted in soft coercion or hardcore persecution. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord has. The The old uh, figure from church history said, you know, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. And that's true. If you look at, you know, the underground church in China and other places, those places are booming and filled with vibrant Christians that are powerfully standing for Christ. And they're they're having to do it behind the scenes a lot. So I don't know what the Lord has for us, but we should pray for peace and not take it for granted. Remember, Nero was in charge during the writing of 1 Peter. When Peter wrote this letter, Nero was pronouncing himself as a god. On his coin, the denarius, it said Pontifex Maximus, the highest religious spiritual person. So if you said Jesus was Lord, that was contradicting the coin of Nero and what Nero wanted said of himself. Peter was crucified upside down for his faith under Nero's leadership. Christians were burned at the stake to light up Nero's garden. They were attached as the pitch and torch in his garden to light it up. So we have a political atmosphere now that is a little bit more vicious. It's um, something that can be, can turn us off and turn us away where we'd want to disengage from it, right? Perhaps some of us just want to go off the grid, not talk about it. And then others want to jump into it at a level that they want to fight fire with fire and get angry at it. And try to take it on and change it, perhaps in the flesh. But both methods can be wrong. If you completely disengage or you're coming in with a fight. Instead, we have to come in with a submissive attitude. 
and a heart to, I think, number one, serve Christ and be a witness for Christ no matter what's going on in our political scene. A lot of times how we respond to political agendas, if we roller coaster up and down too much, we're losing our testimony. Instead, we should be steady as she goes, humbly submissive, and taking a stand for truth. Ultimately, if you are involved in politics, there can be very meaningful, practical ways to affect and influence our world. And I think that's super important. But for most of us as Christians, we are in a place where we're working a job, living in our culture, and we need to have the right attitude. But what about lower authorities? Look at verse 14. It says, or to governors as sent by him. Now, the governors here is speaking to a lower ranking um, of order within the governing authorities. It's the emperor as supreme who is sending governors. That means that not all governors are evil. You have um, a command structure in place. You have even governing levels like the police. You have, uh, you know, the firemen. You have you have different first responders. Whenever a fire truck is, you know, lighting up and wanting to get past, it's our responsibility to pull over, right? And that's an act of submission. Whenever you have a police officer who has pulled someone over, my understanding of the law is you get as far over as possible to give them as much room as possible to do their job, right? When an ambulance is coming, you pull over. And you do this out of humility. <laughs> when there's a stop sign, you don't say that's stoptional. You stop, right? This is all part of the higher laws and the lower laws of the land that we are called to obey. And this is Christian witnessing. This is how the watching world evaluates who we are and where we are spiritually. Well, let me ask this question. Since Christianity is not a group of anarchists or anarchy, is it ever a time, is there ever a time where we're not supposed to submit? We know Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God that which is God's. I mean, that was with Caesar's face on that coin, pronouncing himself as God. They were trying to trick Christ. Uh, They were trying to call him out and get him to go against governing authority. Matthew 26, 51 to 53 is where Jesus is in the garden and he's being taken captive and Peter's taking the sword out and striking the ear of Malchus. In verse 52, Jesus said, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think I can not appeal to my father who will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So when are we called to rebel against authorities? When are we called to take a stand and say enough is enough? I think there's two, two times in scripture that, give us clear principles for that. One, in Acts chapter five, you know, it was when Peter was preaching the gospel to evangelize with his disciples. Someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captives, then the captain with the officers, this is Acts 5, 25 through 29, went and brought them, but not by force. And they were, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. 
And when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles warned or answered, we must obey God rather than men. So the first principle is when a Christian is commanded to disobey scripture, you have to still obey. When a Christian is commanded to disobey scripture, which we are clearly called to preach the gospel, we have to continue to preach the gospel. Or if a Christian is commanded not to obey scripture, that's like, look, you know, you're doing something and, or, or you need to do this thing that violates your conscience according to obeying God's word. You have to take a stand and not go with the party line. You can't disobey the word of God and you can't be restrained from obeying the word of God as a Christian. The early church passively rebelled in Acts 9 to protect a new convert. Do you remember the new convert? It was Saul who'd become Paul. How long did it take Paul to start preaching the gospel? It says he immediately, Acts 9, 20, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. And he was stirring everybody up. He was preaching through Damascus. Remember, he was on the road to Damascus to go there to persecute Christians. He was blinded by the light. He was converted. He went there and preached the gospel instead. And he stirred everybody up. The Jews were plotting to kill him. Verse 24, their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. There's a time to be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves, to to be stealthy. Again, they were trying to restrain Paul from preaching and he said, I'm going to preach anyway. Someone tells you to disobey scripture, you have to obey scripture. If someone tries to restrain you from preaching or obeying scripture, you have to obey scripture. And this wasn't just the Jews. This was the secular governing authority. 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33 speak to that. Paul was talking about how King Eritas or governors under King Eritas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And he was lowered down through the basket. So the Jews had stirred up the secular authorities after Paul. It's a time to flee. So you just ask yourself, am I being forced to violate scripture? Is there something scripture forbids that I'm being asked to do? Am I being restrained from obeying scripture? These are the questions you have to ponder as you discern the right things to do. Well, verse 14 speaks of some benefits that come from submitting to governing authorities. Let's go back to the text here. It says, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. First of all, when we submit and we are submissive regularly to governing authorities, we need to remember something. God through governing authorities punishes evil. That's a good thing. Uh, Literally punishing evil is vengeance is taken. It's the action of government that 
gives us a sense of morality in our world. Do you realize that if governance was lifted and governing authorities are not leading, you know who's going to lead? Someone else. There'll always be a vacuum that will fill leadership. Any society where government is lifted and you can just pick your culture in the world, pick your country where, where, where governance is wobbling, the underground is leading, the mob is leading. You know, things, let's say there's a natural disaster. You've seen it where um, suddenly the power goes out and there's rioting and looting or, or there's anarchy where people see a weakness in, you know, the, the governing system and they're throwing cars over, or breaking windows and taking things. This is a reality that we see even in our own country when people see weakness in governance. And we should praise the Lord for the fact that evil is punished. We know the root of evil is sin. We grieve with the Holy Spirit over sin. We grieve with the Holy Spirit over people who are harmed or being harmed. And we rejoice in the faithfulness of governing authorities, of officers of the law who will run towards danger and put themselves in harm's way to help us. When a crowd believes there's no consequences and the authorities usurped, things go wrong. Romans 13, Paul wrote this 10 years earlier before Peter wrote his epistle. And he's basically saying the same thing. We're to be subject to governing authorities. Verse one, God has instituted these authorities. Verse, the end of verse one, verse two, whoever resists these authorities is resisting God and will incur judgment. Verse three, the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, if you obey the laws and as a general rule, you will have goodness in your life. Verse four, he, the governance is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. This is God's sword of governance. For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And then verse six, a practical application, pay your taxes. (laughs) Talk about being practical. That's a form of submission. Well, not only is evil punished, but verse 14 at the end, it says that good will be rewarded a praise that governance praises those who do good. Peter's recognizing here that not all of society is evil. There are people who obey. When disaster strikes, oftentimes you see the opposite of rioting, the opposite of anarchy. Even with unbelievers, you see people pitching in, right? When we had the earthquake, people are pitching in, people are helping, people are serving one another. People's greater sense of nobility will rise to the surface as God blesses. We have a general population who obeys the laws of God and they should be commended. Governing, governing, governing officials should be commended. First responders should be praised. Volunteers who are part of relief efforts should be praised. And they are at times esteemed within our culture and should be. But even just general citizens who obey should be praised by government. And government does that. It's not taking peace for granted. It's getting involved. By the way, First Timothy 2, I just want to put your eyes back on that passage. Verses 1 to 4. 
When it says to pray for governing authorities, for, for peace and a quiet life, do you realize that that peaceful, quiet life as a Christian, that Christian tranquility is a foretaste of the peace of God that comes through the reconciling love of the gospel? That's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, this is good. The peace that we experience in our culture and in our lives when we are protected by governance, it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Paul's mind immediately goes to God and the Lord Jesus as God, who's our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A peaceful context that we pray for seems to set the table for evangelizing people where people can come to the knowledge of the truth. That's our heart. Again, the principle is we're submissive to governing authorities. We're submissive in our job life. We're submissive in our homes. Why? Because we can see the person that we're being submissive to and we can see through that person to God who is sovereign, who can bless through that governing authority what we pray for. What does submission do? Look at verse 14. Well, verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, what is the doing good here? That's submitting. So hupatasso is, is filled out by verse 15, that by submitting, you should put to silence, literally muzzle the ignorance and of foolish people. If you want to silence people, who are being mean to you, verse 12, who are speaking evil against you. If you want to silence them, be submissive. Acting in a genuinely submissive posture ends the fight. It quells the argument. It's again, chapter two, verse 22. This is Jesus committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Everybody was after Jesus and Jesus did not take the bait. He did not fight back. Well, there's a second aspect to doing God's will here. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, live as people who are free. The critics are silenced. And then Christians are living in freedom. What does that mean? If you look at this word free, it immediately could seem like a contradiction to being submissive, right? If you're coming under someone, how are you supposed to be free at the same time? This is the paradox of the Christian life. When you obey the word of God by faith, and you're willing to put yourself in a posture of genuine Christian, Holy Spirit empowered submission, you're free. Remember, Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. It's just by being a Christian in a culture and being willing to be submissive in that culture, you're free. You say, I don't want to be bound. I don't want to be underneath something. Well, if God has placed you in a situation, even a hard one that you don't like to be in, but you are free in the Lord and you have put yourself in submission there, it's like you're the king over your castle, even if you're a slave sitting in the dungeon. Do you see what I mean? You're free in your heart. You're free. You're so free that Peter gives a warning not to abuse this freedom. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. 
you become so free and so filled with joy in your situation. Let's say you're at a workplace and you don't like your boss, but you're free. You're saying, look, I work for God. Even if this person is persecuting me or talking about me or doing me wrong or stabbing me in the back or, or I'm in a political environment where I don't like it, but I know my, my home is heaven and Jesus is Lord and I'm serving him and he's giving me strength. If you come to that point in your Christian experience where you are free like that, it could become a temptation for you to abuse that freedom. In other words, you could say, look, I'm so free. I don't need to play by man's rules. I can just go as I want to go and do as I want to do because God is my boss. Well, that's what he's saying for us not to do. This vertical focus is powerful and it is freeing, but we don't want to abuse our freedom as some kind of cover-up. Don't play some kind of game at work. Don't play some kind of game in terms of your attitude. We have to be humble. Verse 17, verse 17 captures this freedom completely, this attitude. Look at it. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What does that mean? Honor everyone. Who is that? That's saved and unsaved. That's everybody. Honoring people is giving people respect, giving them their due, esteeming others higher than yourself. Honor everyone. How freeing is that? Let's, let's just take this in reverse. I'm going to honor this person at 80%, this person at 60%, this person at 20. All right, he's a two. All right, now I'm going to give this person 99. And you're always wondering how to be in your attitude. Or instead, you just broad brush it and say, no, I'm in a posture of submission. I'm bought by the blood of Christ and I'm going to give honor to everyone. That's the attitude. That's the freeing posture. But then... He says, love the brotherhood. This is easy for us to do. We love Christians. We love each other in Christ. And then fear God. That's easy to do. We're trusting God. And then he goes, honor the emperor. This is Nero at this point. Same word, honor in verse 17. At the end of verse 17, honor the emperor. We're valuing all these people. Listen, society is primed to influence us. News media is narrating who we're supposed to love and not love, but depending on who you're listening to, it's feeding something. There's a surge of anarchy in the air, in our land. It's real. It's perceived sometimes, but it's this anti-submissive spirit that's fed by the media. It's entertainment driven, as I said. So where do we go? Are we going to be banned from scripture? No, we're going to cling to scripture no matter what, right? The word of God is our bond. It's, it's what we cling to. It's our ground that we stand on. It's clear. It's powerful. It's not in and out media in our heads. It's the word of God, which stands forever. The grass wither, the withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever forever. The word of God does not return void. The word of God, according to Jeremiah, is a hammer. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God will not be defeated. It will not be stopped. The truth will march on. We trust the truth to tell us how to think, how to live in God's will. That's the word of God. 
We love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're able to love our neighbors ourselves because of this vertical focus, because we're going to stand on truth.